0: Hi, I'm Leah Lane, an award-winning travel writer and author of Places I Remember, Tales, Truths, Delights from 100 Countries. On this podcast, we share conversations with travelers about fascinating destinations and memorable experiences around the world. I love interviewing world travelers with fascinating and unusual stories to tell. And on this episode, we have lots of stories of people and places. Our guest is Paul Spencer Sokajoisky, author of A Conservation Notebook, Ego, Greed, and Oso oh So Cute Orangutans, True Tales from a Half-Century on the Environmental Front Lines. Paul has spent much of his life in the rainforests of Asia and less visited corners of Africa, and he's met people, good and bad, and he's been to fascinating places. Welcome, Paul, to Places I Remember.
1: Thank you, Leah. Good to be with you.
0: Well, we'll get to some of your incredible tales in the far-flung regions of the earth. But first, let me just ask you, as former head of creative services for the World Wildlife Fund, tell us what you did in the 50 years since you began in the field.
1: You know, life is a journey, and I was always interested in nature and conservation, although I wasn't too aware of what conservation was when I was growing up in suburban New Jersey. I always knew there was a big world out there that was waiting for me and I wasn't quite sure where it was or what, <laughs> what would happen when I got there. So my, my life has basically been a series of quests to find new experiences, to learn new things, to experience other cultures and see how that's relevant to my life and what I'm doing.
0: Well, you write that your adventures started in the Catskill Mountains of New York with your dad. Tell us about that first.
1: My dad had an old army buddy who had what we used to call a bungalow colony up in the Catskill Mountains outside of new york city and we used to go up there for the summer and my father would take me to rather isolated waterfall that for a young boy was a big adventure my mother was a bit nervous when we went up there she said be careful of snakes and be careful of this and don't do this and we would smile at her and say of course, and we'd go off on our little boy's adventure. And that left me with a, an interest in exploring, an interest in physical effort, and an interest in nature. I didn't realize it. I didn't call it this, but an interest in nature's healing properties.
0: Yes. You know, I, I went up to the Adirondacks once, and there's a place called Tear of the clouds, the tiny little drip. It's the beginning of the Hudson River. It's just Uh a little drip. And I will never forget that. I've been all over the world as you have, but that is something I remember as special. It was a quest of a sort to see the the beginning of it. and it, It didn't disappoint me. So let's talk about some of your other quests. This was the first one, but tell us about finding Alfred Russell Wallace.
1: Oh, Alfred Russell Wallace is my hero. He's my mentor. A bit of background Alfred Russell Wallace was born to a middle class family in 1823, and next year is the 200th anniversary of his birth. Now, Wallace was a curious, smart guy without a lot of life advantages. He left school at the age of 13. Now, I don't know about Yulia, but I've always been a good procrastinator. Oh, yes. And Wallace wasn't. He managed to write 600 articles and papers and 23 books without having finished what we would call high school. Wow. He got friendly with Henry Walter Bates in England. And he and Bates would go out into the English countryside collecting beetles. And Wallace was fascinated by that in the countryside of England, you could have such a diversity of creatures. And he and Bates had the truly astounding, crazy idea to go to Brazil. Now, these are two young men, 23 and 25. They had never been out of the country. They didn't have a passport. They didn't have education. They didn't have... Contacts. They didn't have money. So they got a a small boat. They went up the Amazon and Wallace stayed there for four years collecting, also looking for evidence for what became known as the theory of natural selection, what we know as evolution. Wallace was coming back from Brazil. He lost most of his collection and almost his life when his boat caught fire. He swore, I'm never going on another boat again. Well, two years later, he did. He went to Singapore, Indonesia, and Malaysia. He spent eight years in what is known as the Malay Archipelago. And I was living in Sarawak in Borneo. And Almost accidentally, I realized that I was following Wallace. I was living in the same places that he was living. I was looking at some of the same bits of nature that he was exploring. And I said, well, let's make this a conscious decision and I'll follow him. And I've been doing that over 40 years. And I wrote a few books about that. Charles Darwin was on a Royal Navy boat. He basically had a floating hotel. (laughs) He had a place to store his stuff. He had security. He had a captain. He had people to do his laundry for him. (laughs) Wallace, he had to get by by schmoozing, and he got got by by selling what he called natural productions, beetles, birds, orangutans, monkeys, selling them to his beetle agent in London. (laughs) Part of my quest to find Wallace, I've always been interested in the supernatural and spiritualism, and I don't believe it, but I'm fascinated by it. So I wrote a book called Dead But Still Kicking, and, (laughs) and part of it involves talking to mediums in Indonesia, UK, Switzerland, trying to talk to Wallace, things that only Wallace would know. Who knows? Maybe the subject for another conversation.
0: Yeah, that's another conversation. But I think it's a good thing for a traveler to keep an open mind as well as curiosity. That's a good combination.
1: When I was working in nature conservation, I became interested in what we call sacred forests or holy groves. I said, "This is swell. This is great. This is what I live for." It's not so easy. It's like finding. It's like finding Atlantis. (laughs) It might never have existed. It took me 12 years to put together a little expedition. And we're walking up this mountain and up this mountain to about 3,500 meters. We get to the village and you can see Dunagiri Mountain. And it's red. It's like bleeding red in the sun. (laughs) And then I met this old lady called Pandan Pati a very sweet old lady from the village. Anyway, I hope to go back there next year.
0: This is a quest indeed. I remember I was in one sacred forest. It was in the North Island of New Zealand. You may have been there, the Waipua Forest. The Maoris supposedly came there, and Mahuta is the great kauri tree, the god of the forest. I felt the spirituality there of the people who worship these beautiful cowrie trees that are 2,500 years old, some of them. So I have a little taste of what you do, but not 12 years in in quest. I think that's (laughs) incredible. So, okay, let me just ask you, as a conservationist, you're aware of the marketing of conservation. It's important, so we all know it. Tell us about some charismatic mega vertebrates, such as orangutans.
1: With my friend Jeff McNeely, who's also a co-author I think we coined the term charismatic megavertebrates.
0: That's what I got it from your book, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) When I was hired at WWF and I started working there in 1981, I was coming from Indonesia where I had been working in advertising. Before that, I was in the Peace Corps in Borneo. And they hired me to help promote the brand of WWF. As you know, any kind of NGO, nonprofit, Lives and dies by branding, by success right. stories, by tugging on heartstrings. Right. I saw my role as helping to get nature conservation on the global agenda. If you go back to 1981, conservation wasn't a front page story anywhere. It was sort unfortunately. of unfortunately, yeah, it was sort of on the back of back of the newspaper with the gardening tips. Exactly. We tried to follow a scientific program. But our donors wanted us to follow an emotional program. We would promote charismatic megavertebrates like the panda in China. Now, my colleagues went to China and we can credit them with opening up China to nature conservation because the Chinese at that time, it was only a few years after Richard Nixon's ping pong diplomacy.
0: I remember. We're the same generation,
1: so we we have a common language. And we helped them work with panda diplomacy. We said to them, This is one way you can rejoin the international community. And the panda was a wonderful symbol, and it became WWF's logo. It's cute. Very. It's endangered. Very. It lives in uh, an exotic part of the world. And as Sir Peter Scott, the first chairman of WWF, said, it can be reproduced in black and white. <laughs> the other well-known charismatic megavertebrates that we raised money for were elephants, tigers, and my favorite, the orangutan. Now, Leah, have you ever been up close and personal with an orangutan? <laughs>
0: Only in a zoo. I have been up and close and personal with a lemur in Madagascar, but not an orangutan, and I would have it, loved oh, okay. it.
1: Well, distant relatives. Right. It's hard to be close to an orangutan without feeling a connection. It's what Edward O. Wilson called biophilia, a connection with another species. And they are wonderful animals, intelligent, but not necessarily in the way that we want them to be. Orangutans live in rainforests only on two islands, Sumatra and Borneo. These islands have extensive oil palm plantations.
0: I've, I've driven through them endless, endless oil palm.
1: You have. Well,
0: yes, I have in Malaysia.
1: So, you're familiar with the destruction and how a monoculture like oil palm is not good for biodiversity. So, a lot of my work in the last, I don't know, 15 years has been trying to stop rainforest destruction, supporting local communities. That's the theme of not only some of my nonfiction books, but also some of my fictional books where people are trying some off-the-wall methods to stop rainforest destruction. And in fact, next week, I'm going back to Indonesia, and I'll visit some of these rainforest areas and some of these orangutan rehabilitation centers, trying to understand more about it. Oil palm is a very interesting villain. Oil palm is a terrific crop. It is found in about half of all the products in our supermarkets. It makes ice cream creamier. It's cheap. It's productive. It's about eight times more productive than raising soybeans. It grows quickly and it provides livelihood for millions of people in Southeast Asia. I was invited to a small dinner with a senior Indonesian minister who was living in Geneva, where I live. She had two visitors from Jakarta, the capital, and she had to show them that she understood the the approved rhetoric. So the bit, the dinner was going along very nicely. The food was very nice. We had a nice bottle of wine. And then I opened my big mouth and I said, well, let's talk about oil palm." And the conversation went quiet. And she said, your background is conservation. I said, yes. And she said, my background is economics and trade and support for local people. And in essence, what she told me was, you, you conservationists, you care more about orangutans than you do about people. Heard that. I walked into it. (laughs) And it was her home. I didn't want to be um, too strong about it. So I said my piece and we left it and I I never was invited back to her home. We try to show how nature is in fact supporting local people and how they are poorer when nature is destroyed. And that's the constant dialogue that we have.
0: Now, in your book, you have many characters. Just tell us about the guy in Laos and the white elephant.
1: Oh, his name is Boom Somsi. Now, in the West, we think of a white elephant as something that's expensive, not productive, a pain, a burden. The reason that we think that is an evolution of a Thai punishment. In Thailand, in Laos, in Cambodia, in Burma, white elephants are symbols of the king. They represent a a ruler, a king who is just, kind, and helps give prosperity to the people. A white elephant is precious, sacred, and the old Thai kings were always being bothered by people who wanted something. And he was too polite to say get lost. So he gave them the irrefusable honor of looking after one of his white elephants. Now, a white elephant has to be fed the finest sugar cane, hand fed to him by the most beautiful virgins. And they have to live in these wonderful palaces and so on. And the guy quickly became bankrupt. Poor farmer in the south of Laos, he had a dream that if he went into the forest, he would find a prize of great value. He did. And although he had no experience as an elephant catcher, he caught a white elephant. He brought it back to the village, word got out, and a man from Cambodia came and offered him a lot of money for his white elephant. Before he could do the deal, another man came to the door and said, Hi, I'm from the government, and I'm here to help you. And the guy says, congratulations, you have just collected a white elephant that is the property of the state. Thank you for donating it. (laughs) And the guy says, a small guy against this big guy from the government. Poor Woon Somsi had to ride his white elephant about a week to the capital of Vientiane, where he was given nothing except a hand-painted picture of him and his white elephant. Who wanted the white elephant? Now, this is the real story. The first prime minister and the first president of Laos, Mr. Khe Phomvihane, Mihen, his wife was named Madame Tongvin, and she was Vietnamese. This was an arranged marriage. The Vietnamese had told this Lao politician, marry Madame Tongvin and you will become prime minister. Madame Tongvin became the Martha Washington of Laos. She was desperate to show that she was royalty, to show that she was at a high level. She wanted this white elephant because this was a symbol of her power, of her authority, because nobody liked her very much. I wanted to see this white elephant. So through a few contacts in Laos, I got in touch with her and she agreed to see me. Now, her white elephant was being kept in a nature reserve, and we were in touch with a veterinarian. We were going to see him and visit the white elephant. We got to her compound and I think she had been sleeping and I don't think I think she had forgotten that we had an appointment and I'll be very polite and say that she was not very polite to us. <laughs> she was dressed in an old house dress she uh, grudgingly offered us some water and in any house in Asia you're offered tea and biscuits and right she um, she said where are you from and I knew what she was getting at. I said, America, and her face went dark because this wasn't she still had the memories of the American war and she said why are you interested in the white elephant what do you want and she said it in a, quite an aggressive manner and I said well I'm interested in how it's a symbol of royalty and how you relate to the white elephant blah 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 and went on like this for a little while she told me one or two interesting stories about how she dreamed she was flying to another country and the white elephant was flying like gumbo. yes <laughs> and how if she was sick. It was because the white elephant was sick. And well, we're going to be seeing your white elephant tomorrow. And she didn't say anything. So the next morning, we're driving along to this nature reserve. And my friend who arranged, he said, oh, by the way, I've got some bad news. Your visit has been canceled. Oh, no. We went there anyway. We met the vet, a very nice man. Uh, By the way,
0: is, is it really white?
1: A white elephant is not pure white. There are eight characteristics that the ancient texts have declared a white elephant should have. It's almost impossible to get all eight in one elephant. It includes the number of fingernails. The shape of the ears includes the shape of the tail, the shape of the head, a fair skin. So these are not necessarily albino elephants.
0: Well, you have to keep going because you haven't seen one yet. Is that correct?
1: I've seen several in Burma. Okay. And Burma is very proud of them. And in fact, a few weeks ago, they found another one.
0: Well, the name of the podcast is Places I Remember. I usually ask my guests to give us a story, but I'm going to read a quote, your book, A Conservation Notebook. And it goes like this, my hope in a few decades when we are safely up in heaven playing beach volleyball and writing novels that win the heavenly Pulitzer Prize, we will look down on earth and say, by golly, we were wrong. Our descendants were smarter than we were. They took care of the problem and solved the challenges we wind about. I know you've spent your life not only traveling the world, but trying to make the world a better place and trying to save us from destroying it. And I hope you're right on that last quote. Thank you, Paul Spencer Sokajoski. Your life has been fascinating. You've traveled the world, but more important to us, you've been one of the good guys who's tried for many years to conserve our precious earth. You've inspired others and you tell some great stories. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me, Leah.
0: Thanks for listening to our award-winning podcast. We've recorded over a 100 episodes of Places I Remember, so follow us on any podcast app. And new monthly episodes are also on YouTube with gorgeous video. My book, Places I Remember, is available in print and Kindle, and I read the audio version. Follow my travel writing at Forbes.com. Contact me at the links in the show notes or on my website, com, And keep making your own travel memories.